Welcome. Uh, I'm going to be in the book of John, if you want to open up your Bible. The book of John is the fourth book of the New Testament to help you find that. We'll be in chapter two. And what we've been doing for the last several weeks, we're on week five of the series going through John, because what we found is that, is that Jesus as a character is really, really important to basically everyone. You, you know, every corner of the world, Jesus is a major historical figure. He's kind of a big deal. And, and in that way, we all agree, but we disagree on like why he's a big deal. We disagree on what's important about Jesus, what he accomplished or didn't accomplish. What's, what did the true Jesus do? And so as, as you just listen to people talk about religion, talk about Christianity, Jesus is used almost as like a, like a beacon for opposing viewpoints, right? And so if, if you're into the political world and you watch, you know, your Fox News and your Newsmax and your CNNs and like you're all about political season, which I don't know that anybody is anymore. It's kind of a really nauseating moment in American culture. But but if you were, people will hold up Jesus and be like, you're supposed to vote for this guy because, of course, Jesus, right? And then the, you turn the channel, you go to the next guy, and they pick the opposing person, and they're like, well, you know, Jesus would want you to vote for this person. You see that, don't you? And so what we see is that a lot of people will use Jesus as kind of a, a speaking point, or they'll highlight different things about him. If, if you listen carefully, the narratives that people use when they talk about Jesus, when your friends talk about Jesus, they don't quite all line up. They can't all be the same. So so either Jesus is a super angry person or Jesus is a super soft and loving person with no like no no strength no 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 agency so which, which is it which is it and so all that is to say is that as we decide to look at Jesus we don't want to use our opinion we don't want to look at you know just what's the what's the political americanized Jesus look like what what's important to Jesus we don't want to guess we're going to look at the book of John. Why? Because John is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's one of his best friends, and he's giving an eyewitness account to what his experience was like with his rabbi, with Jesus. And full disclosure, I've said this every week, I think, so far, we don't have to guess why John wrote this or what John's agenda is. You know, a lot of people, they say, well, listen, you can't trust the New Testament, right? Maybe you've heard this. You can't trust the New Testament because there's all this agenda the church had when they put on there. Let, let me be very clear with you. John did have an agenda, and he wrote it at the end of the book of John. Why did John write John? Why did, why did he want us to see this Jesus? Was it because he wanted to keep the church in power? No. Was it because he wanted, uh, 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 I, don't, I don't know, I could go through all the, all the criticisms. No, the, the reason that John wrote it, you can look at it in chapter 20. John says, I write this so that you may believe in the name of Jesus, believe that he is the son of God, and in doing so have life. See, what John believes is that if you get Jesus right, you don't become more powerful. John doesn't believe that if you get Jesus right, you know who to vote for. John believes that if you get Jesus right, your life gets filled with life. Bondage goes away. Uh, you know, uh, uh, all, all the things of death that, that enter us, that you can have eternal life. And he's not talking about like when we die, we get to heaven. That's, that's, a, that's a, an added bonus. That's not the primary thing. He's saying that today, if you become a follower of Jesus, you will have more life. That's John's agenda. And so as, as I've been reading through this, as we've been teaching, I just want to be clear. Uh, I've, I've become convinced that John is right about who Jesus is and what happens when you become a follower of Jesus. I've become convinced that me as a follower of Jesus has more life than me before I was a follower of Jesus. I've become convinced that people that I know who, who they're like, you know what? 
I'm, I'm giving my life to the Lord Jesus. I'm going to trust him. I, I've become convinced that they have more life. And so what I want to do is I want to teach through John. I want, we want to look at this and just, I want to ask the question, like, is he right? Would you consider being a follower of Jesus? Or have you found this to be true if you are a follower of Jesus, that you have more life as a result of following, not, not the opinions of who Jesus is, but the real Jesus. And so today in chapter two, uh, we're going to get to one of the funnest stories about Jesus. Everybody loves the flipping of the tables story with Jesus. I'm going to date myself a little bit, uh, and, and I'm kind of, in, in some ways, I enjoy entertainment that is like a generation before me, but uh, anybody ever watch Seinfeld? You like Seinfeld? It, it is not, it's not super popular now. Uh, in fact, they have an entire like manual. If you're a millennial and you want to watch Seinfeld, you buy this manual so you can understand the jokes because they're all dated and they don't make any sense anymore. But there's this episode of Seinfeld where Kramer and uh, the neighbor down the road, Newman, are playing the game Risk. Have you ever played Risk? It is a stressful, long game. You can lose friends right away. Invite your best friend over to Risk. By the end of it, it's no longer like make-believe World War II. You are literally at war with the person that you're across the table from. And, and they... they the game is going on too long that they have appointments that they're going to do. And, and so Kramer doesn't trust Newman with the game by himself. And Newman doesn't trust Kramer with the game by himself. And so they're, they're just like, no, I'm, I'm going to, we're, we're going to carry this around with us everywhere we go. You're going with me to the barber. You're going with me. to. And as the, as the show goes on, you get to the end. Spoiler alert. It's been a little while. You've had 20 years to watch this episode if you wanted to watch it. Uh, they end up on a subway and they're playing the game Risk on the subway. They've been playing at the market and everything. They're playing the game Risk at the subway and, and someone invades Ukraine. Right? And, and, and someone looks at us like, why'd you take Ukraine? Ukraine's, Ukraine's weak. You don't want Ukraine. And a Ukrainian turns around and he hears it and he says, Ukraine not weak. And he takes the game and he flips the whole thing. And that's the end of the show. So all this, uh, you know, days of playing this game is now over because he what? He just flips it right over. I've, I've always wanted to be in a moment where I was so angry, so indignant that I could just flip a table. Have you, have you ever wanted to do that? Have you ever imagined like what would happen if like you're just like this chicken's raw in the middle? I can't, you know, my waiter's slow and you just took everything and you flipped it. Like how good would that feel? I suspect, honestly, I suspect based on my experience of like outbursts of anger that it sounds like it would feel really good until you actually do it. And you like, you flip the table and, and it's like, oh man, what, what was I, what was I thinking? We're, we're going to read a story in a moment where Jesus, everybody knows it. Like Jesus flips the tables. Uh, there, there was a joke I heard, you know, so, someone was like, you know, you're always asking, what would Jesus do? WWJD. And you got to remember, like, flipping tables is on the options of things that Jesus might do, you know? Like, like what, why did Jesus, who has this almost reputation of being very loving, very kind, very understanding, walk into a busy, crowded place and just start flipping stuff? Like, what, what was he wanting to accomplish? Was it just pure anger? It, it, are we to learn from this, by the way, are we to learn from this that there are some things in this world that your anger can be lit on fire about and you become indignant and outraged over? Because if, if I had to be honest with you, I'll hear people use this story, Jesus flipping tables, as the reason why they hate blank. And you just fill in the blank with whatever their political view is or whatever they're wanting to do. And so they use this story as fuel to justify Jesus would be okay with me acting this way. Why? Because I saw Jesus flip tables. Well, let's, let's be very clear about why Jesus flipped the tables. Let's look at it together. Let's, let's kind of unpack it. What was going on? What was he responding to? And, and if we're going to use that as an example for how we should act, maybe we should be responding to the same things in the same ways. Does that sound good? Can we do that? Okay. All right. I, I'm going to be honest with you. This, this has the potential to get messy, but uh, you can come up here and flip this table if you don't like it. 
We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 13. What John has already done uh, with us is that he's introduced some people. You had John the Baptist come a chapter before. John the Baptist kept pointing at Jesus. It says, my job is to make it so easy for you to see who Jesus is that you'll follow him. And so John the Baptist would kept pointing at Jesus. There goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said it so many times that some of his people started following Jesus. Immediately after that, Jesus goes to a wedding. That's what we looked at last week. He turns the water into wine. We have two favorite stories of Jesus, water into wine and Jesus flipping tables or side by side in the gospel. Gospel of John. Um, before I start reading in verse 13, just one word to all the Bible study nerds out here. Hike up your glasses. Yes, let's talk. Um, John is putting the, the Jesus cleansing the temple, the flipping of the tables, at the beginning of his gospel. The other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have it at the end of their gospels. And so some people want to ask the question, like, okay, well, which is it? Like, what, what's, what's happening right here? Uh, there, there are two possibilities. One is there are multiple cleansing of the temple. I have probably two commentaries that say that in my, in my library. I have another two commentaries that say it's not two cleansings of the temple, but the authors are putting them in different places. Um, I feel like, uh, just, just by way of teaching to you, I, I feel like what we have is that John is taking something that happens at the end of Jesus's ministry, and he's using it now to make a point, okay? And so I, I feel like it's just, uh, John is choosing to put it in this order. But if you have questions about like the order of events and why the different gospels put them differently, come, come chat with me. Uh, let's begin in, in verse 13. It says, uh, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers just sitting there. <laughs> I, I like that John's like, they're just sitting around. Just, you know, it's like they're, they're not there for worship. They're just sitting there, you know. What, what's, what's going on here? I, we're, we're very far removed from a Passover event happening in Jerusalem. We're, we're all Americans. Most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. So, like, what is Passover? Why are they in the temple? Why are they selling things? So let, let's unpack it for a second. Passover is an annual holiday. In, in, uh, that the Jews celebrate. And what they're celebrating is the moment all the way back to Moses where uh, uh, Egypt finally releases um, uh, the, the Israelites and lets, lets them go. Uh, after nine plagues, the tenth plague is that the, the death of the firstborn. And the rule was that if you put the lamb's blood on the doorpost, the angel of death will pass over your home. It would, would ignore your home. And anybody, whether Jew or Gentile, was welcome to participate in this. They could just put the blood on the door and the, the, the angel of, the death, of death would pass over them. Uh, and so we have uh, recorded that if either you put the blood on your door or your neighbor would, and you would go into your neighbor's home. But that night, the angel of death would pass over you. And so that night, uh, Egypt uh, releases Israel. And going with Israel is not just all of the Jews, but you also have Egyptians and you know other Gentiles are like, hey, I'm wanting to follow this God. And they're released from Egypt from, from 400 years of slavery. And every year from that moment, they celebrate Passover the same way as families. So at the time of Jesus, they've already celebrated this moment, this holiday, over 1,500 times. It's been, it's been right at 1,500 years since the first Passover. And every year, they would remember there's bondage, there was slavery, the Egyptians had us, but God set us free. 
Next year, there was bondage, there was slavery, the Egyptians had us, but God set us free. They would tell their kids, God is a God of freedom and he wants to set you free. And you keep fast forwarding year after year, this is getting ingrained from, from grandparents to parents, from parents to, to young children, to the children down another generation, another generation. It's getting spread, 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 that the narrative of the people is that God wants to set you free from all of the bondage of the world. And by the time of Jesus, you have the Roman Empire who has come in, and now they're occupying these people. And so there's this tension all the time. Every time you rounded a corner in Jesus' day, there's a Roman guard reminding you that you're not in control, I'm in control. They would remind you, your God's not in control, I'm in control. Any, anybody here ever deal with the tension between you follow a God that says that there's freedom in his name, life everlasting, but then you have like moments of bondage in your life and you're, you're dealing with that tension of, I follow a God who wants me to have freedom, but I just, I don't, I don't always feel it. And the people in Jesus' day felt that way. And so Passover became this beacon, this, this moment of light where they were like, no, our God is a God who wants to set us free. And people loved this message. So by the time of Jesus, this was grown and it spread. People turned it into a pilgrimage moment. I, I can't think of a single holiday in, in America that's a pilgrimage holiday. Maybe Thanksgiving. Who, who travels for like Thanksgiving or who travels for Christmas? You have to travel like 400 miles to family somewhere because it's Christmas or it's a holiday. That's maybe the closest thing we have to pilgrimage holidays. Every spring, the city of Jerusalem would swell in population because people were migrating to the temple. Why? Jews and Gentiles were migrating to the temple because they wanted freedom. They wanted real freedom. They wanted freedom over their oppressors. They wanted freedom over the, the bondage in their homes. They wanted freedom over, over the pain that they feel inside. They wanted freedom over their own sins and their own guilt and their own, their own shame. They would travel to the temple because they wanted to get close to the God who claims to be the God of those things, of peace and freedom. That's beautiful. And so we have that Jesus, it's time for Passover. Jesus goes to the temple, uh, just everybody else, and there's like a marketplace happening. They're selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Why, why were they selling those things? What, when, when you travel and you're going to have a, um, a moment where you're going to sacrifice a lamb, you have two choices on how to get the lamb there, okay? You can take your lamb from home and travel the 300 miles to the temple, and you have, like, your kids are crying, Mom, are we there yet? Can we stop at McDonald's? I have to go to the bathroom. And then your sheep, your dragon, man, you have to feed this thing all the time, clean up after it. You have to keep it safe from the, you know, the wolves or the coyotes or whatever they've got out there. A camel comes and attacks your sheep. I don't know what each sheep out in the world, but you, you, have, you have all of that. And, and it just became burdensome to bring the lamb that you're going to sacrifice for days on this travel. So what they did to solve that, the people in Jerusalem said, okay, we can help you. We will have lambs ready when you get here. We'll have the pigeons ready. We'll have what you need to worship God ready when you get here. You and your family, if you can just make it here, we'll take care of you. And so the people would get there and they'd buy the lambs and it was awesome. I mean, this is so, this is so much better than that. Like it's an easier drive. You don't have to, you know, keep your lamb alive. You just get there. You get a perfect lamb. You get to worship God. And then, and then more people came. And uh, I don't know who here owns a business, but uh, supply and demand does some stuff to the finances of things. Uh, if you don't believe me, go buy a dozen eggs in a moment, okay? The supply and demand says what? That the more demand there is and the less supply there is, what happens? Price goes up. And so these lambs that were there to meet someone's need, the need is I'm a family traveling so far away, I need a lamb. They got there and the price of the lamb is slowly going up. It's getting a little bit, little bit higher. 
And then you have the problem of where are you going to put this? Like this marketplace has got to be close to the temple. It's got to be close to the place where people worship. And so what they did is that they took in one of the courts of the temple. Okay, and so big history lesson to make a very important point for us in a moment. So hang with me. But if you can imagine, we think Jesus was in the temple. We think Jesus was in a building at this moment. He wasn't in the building. Okay, people didn't walk into the building, quote, the inner courts of the temple. They would go to the temple gates, to the temple complex. You can go there today. Right now, the, the Dome of the Rock is there. It is a huge slab of bricks. It's probably the size of like three football fields with a wall around it. And that was the temple uh, complex. The most outer side of the temple complex was the court of the Gentiles. If you were Jewish, you could walk through the court of the Gentiles into the court that you and your family would go and worship at. But if you were Gentile, not Jewish, if you were, I don't know, Phoenician, Roman, if you were, if you were another people group of a different skin color, maybe, maybe less respected in the community, you would have to worship in the court of the Gentiles. So they set this market up in the court of the Gentiles. The Jews are completely unaffected. Like, okay, the market is here, man, you have goats and all the smells and money changers, people doing their thing, but but they can just walk through all that noise and all that mess, and they're going to go worship quietly in their part of the temple complex. So our church, this church, Carpenter's Way, is in Groves, Texas, right? Big, you know, some of you are like, what? I'm on the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah, yeah, we're in Groves, okay? Uh, imagine, imagine we had a rule, okay? We had a rule that you had to be uh, inside P&G School District, Port Nature's Grove School District, to be in this room. You could worship at Carpenter's Anybody's allowed to worship in Carpenter's Way, but only Port Nature's Grove's people are allowed in this room. We set up a separate room over here for, for you Nederland people and Port Arthur people and, you know, those of you driving from Lumberton and all the places that you're from. You can go worship over there. It's the same God, right? Just over there. And that was our rule. And said, okay, I guess that's what we're going to do. And so all the Nederland people would have to get up and go worship there. And then I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to have some farm animals, and we're just going to have like a concert. It's just a whole bunch of busyness. Like, okay, if you need to buy coffee, we're going to put it in the, in the Nederland side over there, in the Port Arthur side. But the P&G, like we're not going to affect y'all, okay? Um, we're going we're gonna to make sure that uh, all the, all the, all the uh, you know, the offering boxes out there, we're going to make sure all of the business of the church is there. We're going to make sure like Starbucks is there. We're going to make sure that the, the, the valet is there. All of the business of the church, the welcome booth is on that side. What would happen is, is that you PNG people would come into a quiet place of worship and you would have a, a moment with your God. It would be meaningful and you would leave and you would think, oh, this was great. I love church. This is awesome. Everybody else who came from out of town, everybody else who traveled, everybody else who lives in a different community had a completely different experience of what worship was that day. So when Jesus walks into, quote, the temple, what he sees is, There's all these Gentiles who are supposed to be seeing who God is like, and they're having a different experience for it. There's animals, there's money changers. I don't want to talk, uh, I have some notes here about how they were exchanging money, but uh, long story short, they they were getting a little profit out of it. It was loud, it was noisy. And if you were a Gentile, your only way to worship God, that was the best you got. And the people who should care about it, the ones who should be protecting the moment, they've come to expect this is the status quo. This is, this is good. It's serving some people's needs. It's not perfect, but it's good enough. They ignored the fact that they had obstacles that were preventing people from getting to God. Let me ask you a question before we read the rest of this. Like Jesus is about to respond to this, but let me ask you, what obstacles do you see in our community? Let me, honestly, what obstacles do you see in Carpenter's Way that prevent people from seeing God? 
What things do we just come to expect because it's something we've always done in our community or something we've always done in our church and it is causing a barrier for people to see the one true God and find hope and freedom and love and life? What obstacles are there in our church or in our community? Because what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to respond to those moments. We want to use this whole Jesus flipping tables as like, oh, I'm going to go talk about China for a second because Jesus would flip that table. Jesus didn't go to the political people. Jesus didn't go to the adulterer's house. Jesus didn't show up in the, in the prostitution sector of town and start flipping tables. We use the table flipping story as reasons why we should respond to all sin. But Jesus flipped the tables in the religious area, causing barriers for people to get close to God. He didn't run after hunting sin. He wasn't a sin, you know, wiper outer. He went to religious people and he flipped their tables. Ouch. Okay. So what religious tables have we put up? And what are we willing to do about it? What would Jesus do if he saw them? I asked this as, as pastor, I asked this because it may actually be a blind spot of mine that we actually have a barrier here. I can't think of one. Uh, let me flip it around. What barriers do you have in your life? What tables do you have in your life that as people approach you, that it's making them hard to see God? Let's, let's keep going because that's going to get messy. Um, so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, hey, you guys knocked it off. I want you to quit. <laughs> some, some images of Jesus, some, some of the um, uh, kind of stereotypes of Jesus are like, he's too nice to raise his voice, right? Jesus, you know, I'm going to be Christ-like, and that means I'm just quiet, and I just take, take my licks. Sometimes Jesus is quiet, and he doesn't respond. Sometimes he speaks up very loudly, and he knows when to respond. He knows the difference between the two moments. Jesus turns out to be a man of character and very bold. He says in verse 15, "...in making a whip of cords..." He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Holy cow. Like, that is, that is wild to me. This is a Jesus who, he makes a cord of, of whips out of whatever he's got, and he starts, like, hitting, like, gets the goat. He's like, man, and he just sends the goat out. Could you imagine, like, you're on your way into the temple court. It's like, I finally made it after, like, a week's journey. I've got my money. I'm going to buy my sheep. And then, like, goats and pigeons go flying by you. You're like, what is going on? You look up. People are scattering. And there's Jesus, who you've been hearing about. And he's, like, waving a whip around his head. You're, this is wild, all of a sudden. He, he, he's sending, he's sending, uh, uh, the, the sheep and the oxen out. And then, and then it says that he pours out the coins of the money changers. I wanted to do this as an expression, but could you imagine, like, there's these buckets of money and everybody's like, well, you know, is he going to steal the money? Or are all the crowd going to steal the money? No, Jesus just takes the bucket and he just slowly pours them out. He, I bet he's staring at people as he does. He's like, is this yours? Huh? Ding, ding, ding. It's like money bouncing everywhere. As soon as the big pile of money is there, who's to fight for whose it is? Hey, that's bills. No, uh, who knows? It's just a mixture of money. All your sheep are mixed up. All the pigeons are gone. And he told them in verse 16, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He's saying what we were supposed to do here is different than what is happening here. And what is happening here is becoming a barrier to being a house of worship. Now, to be clear, Again, a lot of us, we read this and we're like, well, they were just wicked, evil people. They were just trying to get some money. But this started off as a good thing. This started off as a response to a need, and it's grown into a barrier. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So as his disciples see this happen, they start remembering this quote, and it's out of Psalm 69. If you ever want to look it up, I'll turn to it right now. It won't be on the screens by me. Psalm 69, uh, verse 9 says this. 
For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Verse 10, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. The disciples remember this psalm as if this is something that, that Jesus is doing, that there's this zeal, this passion for his house. The Hebrew word for zeal, by the way, is kana, uh, which if you were here last week, that should ring a bell because he did a, uh, a little change of the wine into water in the city of Cana, Cana means passion. For some reason, John is stacking these two passion stories, these two zeal stories on top of each other. That we're supposed to have this picture of Jesus, that he's both the Jesus who turns water into wine for the moment of passion and, and zeal, and he's also the Jesus that has no patience for people getting in the way of seeing who God is. Uh, in the other Gospels, they quote uh, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, 11. Uh, I, I don't have the time to refer to them, but in, the, in those passages, we see that the purpose of the temple was to be for all peoples. And that the, the prophet uh, Jeremiah, he, he, he prophesies that you've turned it into a den of robbers. And what Jesus wants to do is that he wants to make this path straight for people to see who God is. I, I want to ask the same question again, just, just pulling away from the text for a second. Why is it that people can't see God? What's standing in the way for people seeing this God who loves others, who is willing to send his son to die for them? Why is it that when people talk about God, they get the sense of an angry, vindictive God who is just out to take all the joy and push down on them when John sees a God and is promoting a God that wants to give life eternal and life everlasting? Why is that such a hard message to get out for people right now? Uh, I want you to Google when you leave here um, the Asbury Revival. I am all over this. If you haven't looked at this yet, there, there is something happening where college students started a chapel service 12 days ago, 11 days ago, something like that. They started worshiping God, and they haven't stopped in the last 12 days, 24-7, people are just approaching this room to sing songs to this God, to praise him, to publicly confess their sins and repent of them, and, and, and to just sit and pray. There's no lights. There's no fog machine. They have just a guy and a, uh, a guitar. There's this very low production value. And people are just falling in love with God with a passion that is outflowing into the streets. They're just singing. I saw this morning, they're singing praises to God in the streets in front of a college university just because they're seeing, maybe for the first time, that God is not against them. That God is good. That he is holy, yes, and holiness requires repentance, but he's not vindictive and he's not angry. Why is it that people have such a hard time seeing that? Jesus flipped the tables in the temple because they were causing the barrier to where people couldn't see that. And so if Jesus shows up to Mid-County tomorrow, and he's like, hey, I have a mission. I'm going to go remove all the barriers from people getting a good glimpse of who God the Father is. Will you help me? What am I helping him flip? Why is it that this is a foreign concept to so many people out there? I wonder, I wonder if, if maybe there's some things that we've come to accept as just normal. Maybe we've come to accept normal that, that character doesn't matter and holiness doesn't matter. Maybe we've come to accept the fact that if that guy, Jesse, can get up there and speak really, really good, it doesn't matter if he's a complete jerk off the stage. Maybe it does matter. Maybe character does matter. Maybe we've come to accept too many flaws, too many sins, too many mistakes as just normal, and Jesus would come flip them because they're barriers to seeing who the Father is. 
Okay, so he goes in, he flips some stuff, he has a great time. Uh, <laughs> the disciples are like, oh, well, I remember that, you know, we wrote about this in Psalms. This is back there. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I love this question. This is so good. The people who were in charge, they're like, okay, okay, great. They're, they're just standing back. Jesus flipping tables, goats running out. They don't say stop. They don't say, hey, what are you doing? They don't say, you know, what we were doing was okay. They never actually defend themselves. They look at Jesus and say, what sign do you have that says that you have the authority to do that thing that you just did? They're, they're looking for a sign. The, we, we saw last week that you know, signs are something that John uses to point to future things, to point to the glory of who Jesus is. They're like, well, what sign do you give for these things? Um, it's telling to me that they don't say, hey, stop, we were okay. Don't, stop, God really wanted those things. They, I, think, I think everybody knew. I think everybody knew that this was not the best for God, but they just come to accept it. But what signs do you have to, to have authority to do this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That is, that is really uh, heartbreaking to them because they've been working on, at this point, they've been working on the temple for the last 46 years. They've got another 30 more to go before they finish. And then within like six years of them finishing it, Rome destroys it again. So uh, anyway, uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That'll be your sign. That'll be your sign. If, if this thing gets destroyed... He'll come back in three days. That'll be your sign. Verse 20, the Jews then said, well, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But, and this is John telling us, John, I like that John kind of steps in every now and then and explains it for us so we don't have to be confused. But he was speaking uh, about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus says, you want a sign? Crucify me. Crucify me, and in three days, I'm going to come back to life. That'll be your sign. And then he just walks away from the temple. <laughs> like all the goats are gone, the tables are flipped. He's like, you good with that? Okay, I'll see you guys later. And, and it's going to be a few years before, before he, this happens. You know, the beauty of John is that he doesn't hide from the idea that resurrection is on the table. Okay, Let, let, me, let me tell you something. If, if, if you tell me, hey, Jesse, I need you to do... I don't know. I need you to sell your house. I need you to move to Zimbabwe. I need you to do all these things. I'm going to tell you, like, who do you think you are? Like, you have no authority to tell me this. And then if you say to me, like, listen, I'm going to die tomorrow, okay? And I'm going to come back in three days. Anything, if, if you can do that, if you can call that shot, whatever you say after that, I'm just going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe what you have to say. Jesus was asked, hey, what's going to be your sign? And his response is like, I'm going to die. And I'm going to come back three days later. And then you'll know that I was telling the truth, that I had the authority to flip these tables. And John's going to hold out as the gospel rolls on. He's going to hold out that that did, in fact, happen. What, what barriers stand in the way? I want to ask a question before we close. Uh, it's just kind of a thought-provoking question. Um, is this, is what are you willing to do with the obstacles that you see keeping people from seeing God? As you just kind of move around the world, you see, you see someone mistreating someone in the name of Jesus. They're representing Jesus wrong. What are you willing to do about that? What are you willing to do with, with institutions or other barriers that you see keeping people from seeing God? What if, what if as you're assessing some things, you see that there's something in your heart that is a barrier from someone seeing God? Would you be willing to repent of that? Would you be willing to sacrifice that on the altar? Would you be willing to ask God for forgiveness for even putting that barrier up? And you may say, Jesse, hold on just a second. Like, 
I, I'm defensive because I was hurt back then. I built this wall to protect me from being hurt in that way. I would say to you, then you built a wall for a good reason, but maybe the good reason is now becoming the barrier for other people seeing God. You know what? I'm not going to put myself in that position. And so now I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more withdrawn. I'm quieter. I don't speak up as much as I used to because last time I did that, it completely bankrupted me and I was, I was empty as a result of it. And I would say to you, then it makes a lot of sense for why you would want to be more reserved and more pulled back. I, I get that you were hurt. I get that you were protected. But at some point, we have to heal. Would you be willing to sacrifice that barrier at the foot of the cross? Would you let Jesus flip that table? There's a, a guy, great name, Mike Iaconelli. I, I, I think his parents just disliked him. I don't, I don't know, but it's a great name. Uh, he wrote a book called Messy Spirituality. And in, in the book, he, he tells this story about some World War II soldiers. It's a beautiful story. Uh, these World War II soldiers, uh, in, the, in the course of battle, they lost one of their friends, um, and they have to bury their friend. And so they take their friend to this church courtyard, uh, uh, church uh, cemetery, uh, and they go knock on the door, and they tell the priest, like, you know, my friend, my friend died. We, we, we would like to bury him. We'd like to bury him in your cemetery. Can, can we bury our friend in your cemetery? And the, the priest says, no, I'm sorry. The cemetery is for members only. Uh, you, you can't, and they're just heartbroken. So they're getting ready to leave. They say, oh, I'm sorry. Listen, uh, you, you can bury him just anywhere outside the fence that you like, just, just out, outside the fence. I'm sorry. It's just our rule. And so they did. They dug, the, they dug the plot. They got right up against the fence. They dug the plot. They buried their friend. They left. They had a little, a little memorial service. They left. And the next day, they're getting ready to move out. They're getting ready to go to their next station, wherever they're going to go next. And the friend said, well, let's go pay our last respects. We're gonna, we may never come back. We may die. We may never get another chance to respect our friend and to, to have a moment. So they get a few more of the guys together and say, this is where we buried him. And so let's, let's go over there. And they get there, and, the, and their friend's gone. It's just, it's just missing. And they're angry. The, the friends who buried him are like, he's, he's around here somewhere. We buried him last night. I know he's here. And they're looking around. The other people are like, well, maybe it's another cemetery. No, it was this cemetery. And that priest told us that we couldn't bury him there because we weren't members. So maybe he did something. And so they go and they go knock on the door and they're mad. They're angry at this guy. And he said, listen, what would you do with our friend? We're, we may never get a chance to come pay respects again. What did you do with our friend? And the priest says, I'm so sorry. He said, he said I could not sleep at all last night after you guys left. He said, I, I, don't, I don't know why it's our rule that we can't bury non-members in our cemetery. It's just our rule, and I couldn't sleep, and I was, I was so ate up by it. Uh, I didn't move your friend. He's right where you left him. I just moved the fence. I got up last night, I took the fence, and I moved it over, and now he's in the cemetery. And the people are like, oh, that's beautiful. So they went and paid their last respects. What fences have we put up? And we just go through the motions because it's just our policy. And in the process of just going through our policy or the way things have always done, we're keeping people out unnecessarily. The story ends, um, verse 23 through 25, and John is like, he stepped in to kind of tell us what's about to happen for the rest of the gospel. And this, this actual passage will begin our next season through John. We'll come back to this passage and look at it because it explains every story that follows it for the next three chapters. But it says this, it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, what happened? Many believed in his name. You know, after Jesus turned water into wine, many believed in his name. The disciples believed in him, Mary believed in him, the servants believed in him. Those who saw what he did believed in him. But this is a moment of, of kind of chaos. This is a moment where Jesus is removing the barriers, and people believed in his name, maybe because they're for the first time getting a good glimpse of who God is, maybe because he removed those barriers. 
when they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus doesn't entrust himself with the people who are celebrating him because he knows what is in man. I, I suspect that if we took a moment of just quiet introspection, we'd find little corners of our heart with these little marketplaces that they started for good reason. They were there to serve a purpose and somehow we've let them become a barrier to people seeing God and Christ through us. We dismiss people that we shouldn't dismiss. We, we, we push back in response with anger when we don't need anger in that moment because that's what the barrier tells us to do. That's what the pattern tells us to do. And we say, it's what I've always done. And I suspect that if Jesus were to just show up in my heart, he would start flipping little tables and I'd be mad about it. I'd be, I'd be ticked off. Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians that we are temples to God. The temple is the place that you would go to to get to the presence of God. And in the New Testament, as the outpouring of the Spirit has gone into all believers, Paul would say, well, that makes you and I temples of God. As we move about this community, we, we are the representatives of God. We've recaptured being image bearers of God. And so the question that's left is, what barriers are in Jesse? They're keeping them from seeing Jesus. What barriers are in you? Would you be willing to lay it down as an act of worship? Just, God, I'm sorry I've been doing that for so long. I'm sorry I've let that hurt communicate that to people. I'm sorry that people aren't seeing Jesus as well as they should. I want, I'm willing. I'm willing to let that go. What tables would Jesus want to flip in you? Let me pray. We'll watch the cue together. Father, Father, uh, first, um, Lord, we, we ask your forgiveness for when we... Um, when we let anger and rage uh, uh, be our course of action, Father, we, we don't, we don't want to use this passage out of context as justification for things you wouldn't be about. Uh, Lord, I pray for us that as we, as we just introspect for a minute, as we, as, we consider, um, as we consider what we've come to accept as normal, Lord, would you, would you give us eyes to see things that, though they're normal, they're not of you, um, and the courage to lay them down at your feet? Would you, would you show us more of, of, of how we can lay these sacrifices away and, and walk in freedom and to be clear image bearers of you? Father, we, we want to represent you well in our community. We want our families to see Jesus. We want, we want, we want our community to heal. And in whatever ways we're standing in the way, Lord, we, we, want to, we want to rectify that. So, Father, I give you permission in Carpenter's Way to flip whatever tables you want. Um, not because you need our permission, but uh, I'm willing to be a part of that. Lord, as, uh, as I consider my own heart, I pray that you would, uh, you would flip whatever you want and that um, whatever obstacles are there uh, for others to see you, that you would, uh, you would make that path straight and that um, people would see Jesus and be healed. We love you. Pray this in his name. Amen.